welcome to the Black Minds Matter podcast, where we discuss the root causes of educational inequality and the hope we have for a better path forward. Our essence and our being deserve life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Black Minds Matter. Um, as always, we have so much to talk about and so little time to talk. Um, and that is exactly why we continue to have really important conversations around education, freedom, and for Black people specifically in this country. Today, we are joined by Curtis Valentine, who is the Deputy Director for the Progressive Policy Institute at the University of Maryland. We have the Outreach Director at EdChoice, and Paul Dolphin, who is the Deputy Director for the Louisiana State Chapter of the American Federation for Children. Thank you guys so much for joining, and let's just hop right into it. So can we, let's first start off by talking about, because today we're talking about education and economics. And so why don't you guys go around the horn and tell us what you think the problem is when it comes to school funding and education economics and the mobility for blacks in America? Uh, Emory, let's start with you. Well, I think one of the problems when you um, look at school funding, definitely with in regards to over mobility for African-American families and students, um, the money doesn't truly follow the kids to allow families to do what they want to do. Um, when you look at the number of black-led charter schools and the fact that charter schools don't receive 100% of the funding. Um, you look at those families that are actually going to private schools, uh, especially those going to black-led, black-run private schools. Um, unless there's a voucher in that state, you know, there's no approval funding going with that family um, to that school that they're choosing. Um, so I think that's one thing that stops you know, a lot of upward mobility because our students aren't getting the education that they deserve, that they need, and a lot of them aren't truly learning about their history um, to actually aspire to do better and be greater. Yeah. Paul? Thank you, Denisha. I'm gonna piggyback on what Emory was saying with the, the funding uh, that's going to the schools through the students, even when there is a a supposed uh, per pupil funding equality happening, and the money is supposedly following the child, and and this goes for for any type of of public school, traditional public charter schools. Uh, what has what has really happened is because a portion of that funding for the school is based on local property tax. Uh, because of economic disparity, because of uh, a low percentage of home ownership among minority families, and then the homes that they do own are of lower value, there's a lower tax base, so there's lower funding in those schools. So that just reverberates uh, through the availability of quality of education. And then I know we'll talk about it later, but even uh, for contracts that uh, that minority businesses could uh, go after, you know that funding is limited. Yeah, and that's just one of the problems. <laughs> yeah, Curtis, what about you? Good morning, Denise. Everyone, uh, I did want to make one correction. Um, my project is not actually housed at the University of Maryland. While I'm a professor there. Um, the Reinventing America Schools Project is at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. 
uh, just for that correction. Uh, I wore my shirt today, uh, free-ish, uh, 1865. You know, um, I think in, in America, you know, we've given our, we, you know, America has given America this artificial sense of freedom um, that uh, we often, every generation has to reclaim uh, and gives me the impression that we didn't have the freedom uh, after all that we thought we had. Because if we did, we wouldn't have to have to reclaim it every generation. And right now you're seeing outside uh, your window or in this case on your computer, a sense of freedoms that I think we thought we had, um, but realize once you try to exercise them uh, and their challenge that you realize, well, you know, we didn't have them after all. Uh, when it comes to education, I think, you know, generation after generation has proven that if given the power of self-determination uh, and the resources that we could excel in spite of. Just finished a book on the creation of the United Negro College Fund last night and just the history of HBCUs uh, and Black-led colleges, which are both private and public. Uh, and just the idea that every generation has to reestablish the purpose of whether, you know, HBCUs, uh, institutions, you know, uh, created specifically for African-American, led by African-Americans, are necessary. Uh, and the idea of, you know, money following the child and education, money uh, staying within the community historic is, is historical in this country. Um, but every generation is sort of asked to, you know, forget the past uh, and relitigate things that have happened uh, already. And we thought we've, we've won. And so you have people like Emory, uh, who is in, uh, in many ways, a part of a tradition of education advocates who have to reestablish every generation uh, that we can do it, um, that it's our money, um, that the freedom that we thought we had were, uh, that we thought were always there are, are ours, um, but it really takes others to join forces with Emory and, and Paul and yourself uh, to stand up and say, um, our freedom is not conditional um, and it's not limited uh, in any way. And it's especially important as relates to public uh, education. Yeah, and so we when we were talking, you know, we were having a, um, a really exhaustive conversation, and because uh, the education, we spend so much trillions of dollars in America on education, and it's pretty astonishing when you think about like where all that money is going. And Curtis, you brought up a good point about who's paying for the toilet paper, like who is who is who has those contracts, like you teed up, Paul. Who has those contracts within the education? Which is in supply something as simple as toilet paper. Well, I mean, I, I'll start. I think um, for those, you know, I'm in addition to being with, you know, you know, professor and working at a policy think tank. I'm also a member of my school board where I live. Uh, and this came up in a previous conversation around just what I call uh, the economy of education and just how public education has built the black middle class, not only in preparing them for college and for certain careers, but in many ways um, allowing African-Americans to become part of the actual um, nuts and bolts of creating a school fund, you know, and, and getting a school running. Um, my family uh, are co-founders of uh, a, uh, a school in Southern Virginia um, called it Rosenwald School. In a recent discussion with the one of the um, off, the author of probably the most um, uh, respected uh, book on Rosenwald, she was asked, "What is it? What is a 2020 
or 21st century version of Rosenwald School, and she said a charter school. Uh, and she is not a charter school advocate. And she is, you know, um, and so if I just sort of use that terminology that my great grandparents opened a charter school, um, uh, my great uncle, the son, created a bus company that allowed him to raise a family of 10 and send six of them to, to college. Uh, and so there traditionally have been African Americans who have uh, been able to create schools, uh, but also benefit from the economy of those schools, which is the bus contracts, the, uh, the building contracts, um, the curriculum contracts, uh, all the different things that school systems um, dole out in resources every year. Oh, Curtis. Uh, yes? Emory and Paul, are you all okay or, or is it just Denise? Yeah, we're, we're okay. Yeah, we're. Is, uh having a problem on her end. All of our connections are bright and clear and unfailing, and Denisha's yeah. frozen. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Stop. Maybe she can freeze yeah. the video. Yeah, I and think Denisha may have to make sure she's got a good connection. I know she just moved to Florida. Yeah. And she, <laughs> could, she can, uh, you know, edit this out. I was rolling, man. I, I was I know. going. I know. You know what I was going? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take it. We'll like we'll, say it again. Like, at the Rosenwald School. How's that? <laughs> what I say? Oh yeah, yeah. Hold on. Oh man, hold up. <laughs> your your family. Know. Start with your family. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be in good shape. Freestyling. Hold up. You know you're gonna free, freestyle. Hold up. What did you say, bro? I was freestyling, man. That's what I just said. <laughs> Denisha, Are you okay, you Denisha? Clear, How is that? But you look frozen. You're still frozen. It's like we're the ones who are. I mean, that's right, why, I we got a, got a hurricane coming your way. Is it? Uh this this move seems okay. Oh, it seems like it's better. Is that better for now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's edit all that out. Okay, I'm sorry. I know. Yeah. Just okay. So I'll, I'll go kind go of go again. I'll go back um, and just say, you know, um, I, I think it's important that we talk about the economy of education and understanding that um, schools of color, particularly schools of African Americans, are many, many built the black middle class. And we talk about that, we kind of limit it to preparing African Americans for college and for careers. But we don't talk about just the um, the income and, uh, that goes into creating a school, sustaining a school, hiring teachers, um, the bus contracts, um, and, and the like. And so, um, my my family are a family of uh, of, edu of education school founders. We founded a school called the Rosenwald School, um, which is a uh, which is a series of schools of, of five thousand throughout the South, from Texas all the way up to to Maryland. Uh, my great grandfather's. Uh, uh, Beverly and Martha Valentine helped found that school, but my great uncle Willie, the son of uh, Beverly and Martha, uh, created a bus contract. Uh, I mean, uh, started a bus company that eventually helped him raise ten kids and send six uh, to college. Uh, there's similar similar stories uh, about the past, but also to the present, where you have African Americans who have become part of uh, the the running of very large school systems. My school system in Maryland uh, is a 2.7 billion dollars with a B. Uh, contract, and so there's money going in and out of the door 
Uh, but the question is always how much of that money is staying within the community and how much of that money is in uh, the hands of African-Americans. Yeah. And oftentimes, like we because we all are in the same train of thought with promoting education freedom, like we want for kids to get the funding to go to the school that meets their needs, abilities and interests. And most of the time, our conversation is surrounded by making sure that kids receive the monies to go to a private school, receive the monies to go to a charter school. But the conversation that we're having today is a little bit different because there's so much money within the public education system that we can use to liberate black people and their businesses and et cetera. Uh, Paul, because, you you know, we talk about it quite often with, you know, this isn't just about private school choice. Like this is bigger than that. And how do you how how can the public, you know, get on board with education freedom based on this topic of economics with just the monies in the public education system? Yeah, I think the, the people in the public who are only looking at this, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people that I think should be supporting education freedom get uh, wrapped around things like uh, taking money away from public schools, for example, like it's taking money away from them when in reality it's money they never had. But, you know, just to, to give you an example of in the money that's out there and Curtis, you talked about the, you know, the bus company uh, here in New Orleans where we have a, a all charter school system, public school system, uh, transportation is not handled district wide anymore. So right now, about $30 million is spent on trans transporting oh. students in New Orleans, which is a huge part of, of the school budget. And thankfully, uh, many of those uh, transportation companies are African-American owned or at least African-American operated. So, you know, that's a great example of, of the opportunities that are out there, but it's it just spreads out. Uh, you know, I'll give an example from, from my experience. Uh, before I was with AFC, I was doing uh, public relations through my own firm. And that's actually how I got pulled into the ed reform movement is when they were starting the first charters in New Orleans, they needed a communications company to help get the word out and really do some grassroots work with uh, parents uh, to get them on board. And that's how I came on board and ended up uh, eventually doing public relations communications for a network of four charter schools. It was not only doing their communications, ended up creating the website for, for these schools and you know, where the power happens is I'm in the door. I'm an African-American. I know, and Denisha will, you know, we've already joked about it. Uh, sometimes people will see me on, on this podcast and go, why is this guy talking about black stuff? But I'm an African-American. And when I uh, decided to go to AFC and leaving that contract behind, I was able to recommend to the charter board that uh, that they hire another African-American firm that to take over that contract. And that's exactly what they did. But I think the other thing that that people have to do when they look at this, this education sector and how it's evolving is they need to to mine the information and the, the flow of information on where these contracts exist. 
well, how do I get in? How do I bid on this? Are these or or because not all these contracts are going to be up for public bid. You know, the one that I had was not public bid. It was relationships. So you've got to start making relationships with with these school leaders. You have to uh, and you have to keep your eye on on what's up for bid because of the toilet paper contract, the bus contract. Those will be bid items, but other smaller contracts, uh, which are what we call in Louisiana that don't have to be bid out professional service contracts, uh, those can run cumulatively into the millions and, and they're out there and they're not going to be on a public bid list. So, uh, you know, the opportunities, you know, are, are there. It's funny. I mean, I'll, I'll just say the, the irony is that when it comes to a lot of the conversation around scholarships for, for private schools and quote-unquote vouchers and the like, the uh, public response is often, uh, how do we ensure that the money uh, is being the way it's supposed to, uh, you know, being used the way it's supposed to be used, accountability to um, non-public entities, which is which is a valid question. Um, and I think that's, that has to be something that is goes both ways, uh, obviously, as a public school system, you have to have the public trust. You have to understand that the public believes that everyone has an opportunity that it's not um, conditional on, on anything like that. But I think oftentimes, and this is happening even now with regards to the charter network, there's these uh, conditions that are put on one set of schools and not on the others. Um, and I think it's just important that you know there's a universal understanding because when it comes to parents, and you know I work a lot more with parents than anybody else. Parents don't really care what you call it. They don't, I mean, it's in, and in some instances, you know, places like DC, you know, you have parents who have children in public schools, in charter schools. They may have a, a parent or a child who's on a scholarship at a private school. Uh, and all those three kids are coming home and she's sending them off to three different schools. Um, and the names of the schools may not have charter in them, may not have private in them. It is sort of this elementary, this middle, and this high school. And I don't think that mother is sitting down at the beginning of the day choosing, um, you know, schools based on politics, um, based on who's elected this or or that. I think she's just trying to make the best decision. But when we say, you know, her her middle child school is going to be going to be you know measured this way, youngest child school is going to be measured this way, and her oldest child school is going to be measured that way. For her, she really can't get her head around it. And so I think we have to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of of sort of everyday people uh, and get our head out of the sky and these bureaucrats who um, sort of try to use, you know, oversight as a, as a, as a, as a penalty in some ways, because I think we all can see it. And we know that it's, it's hurting children and parents can see it, see through it too. Mm -hmm. Do you guys, oh, go ahead, Emory. So I wanted to go back to something that Curtis brought up when he was, you know, talking about Rosenwald schools and the history of HBCUs. You know, just imagine, I grew up in Albany, Georgia, uh, which Albany State University is located there. I took one class at Albany State, but I still look at Albany State homecoming as my homecoming because of that rich connection that our community had to that HBCU. Those are the type of connections we need to build with our Black-led charter schools and private schools. We all know the, econo the economic impact that HBCUs have in the community. Black-led charter and private schools can have those same impacts because, again, like you know, Paul and Curtis have pointed out, we're directly in charge of those contracts. You know, we're directly in charge of who gets them, who we work with, who we partner with. 
versus like Paul said, when you look at some of these deals that the big districts do, some of those you can bid on, some of them you can't, and a lot of them are based on relationships. And if you don't know how to navigate that system, a lot of times our black contractors get left out. But if I was starting the school, I'm the school leader, I know that Paul has a background in PR. I can go directly to Paul and hire him. I know that Curtis, you know, family may have a couple companies that can help us out. I can go directly and hire them. That's the true economic impact that black led, black run charters and private schools can have directly for our communities. And, and Emory, in, a, I mean, in the country, I'm sorry, but Emory, I mean, that I think that's the Black Wall Street that we talk about. Um, yeah. and, you know, we talk about, you know, with Tulsa and it's sort of, um, you know, there's a reimagining of what the world could look like if African-Americans were truly in control. You know, we have these sort of, you know, Black Tuesday, the Black Friday, Black from a Black business today. Um, we never have we never say enroll your kid in the black school today. Right. You know, we said put some a little bit of money in a black bank. You know, go go buy a black fish sandwich. You know, you know, I love fish sandwiches. I'm not trying to be pejorative. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, go you know go buy you know um, go use a black caterer to buy you know a cake. I, I love it. Yeah, but no one says Yeah, I mean, do it, man. But no one says enroll your child in a, in a, in a black school today. Now, Curtis, I'm I'm going to throw out a, a question Paul, to you. One question, Paul. Before yeah. you do that. Okay. If I did do that, the first question would be, Curtis, where are all the black schools you talk? What black school are you talking about? Right. That's, that's my question. question. And the second question would be, well, Curtis, how am I to pay for that? <laughs> and so this is this yeah. is this is the conversation we have to have. Like, all right, so Emory Edwards is Emory Edwards Academy for boys in science and technology. You know, kids are learning calculus in fourth grade. You know, Kurt, I, I found a school, Kurt. Black school, brother's cool. You know, Georgia State alum, you know, Albany, Georgia. I love it. But how do I pay for this thing, Kurt? You said support black money, you know, but I'm paying taxes. Um, and so I think these are things that, you know, we could talk about it. But again, put ourselves in the shoes of people who are saying what happens next. But I'm sorry, Paul, what were you going to say? Yeah, well, that, you know, you, you, you said put your child in a black school. What's, uh, I guess, in your in this example, what's your definition of a black school? Is it a school that is, quote unquote, owned by blacks? Is it a school that is at least uh, managed by blacks? Uh, in the case of a charter, that, that black, a, a black organization has the charter. What, what's the definition? Well, so if you ask that question in New Orleans, you know, what would that be? Or in your community, that, that's a no. That, that's a great question because we talk about black-led schools, and we all know that some institutions will put a black person out in front, mm -hmm. but in many ways they're an employee like anybody else and can be uh, removed rather quickly. But who has the fiduciary responsibility in many ways? That could be the board, but in some instances, mm -hmm. uh, there's a third party, a foundation, or something like that. With a black-led private school, clearly it's going to be. Uh, the, the person who's out front, but also those who have invested in him or her to create that school. Uh, but my thing is, whose wealth is being, where, where is the wealth going? That's kind of, I mean, and that's sort of a, that's also a, a mentioned question with a question. So where is the wealth going and the, and the profit going? So most instances, obviously, nonprofits, I mean, um, these charts are going to be nonprofits, but, but there, there's still resources that are going to go back to expand, to grow. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's certain salaries that are going to they're going to switch. 
Uh, and I've never been someone who really kind of poked holes at salaries of, 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 of charter school leaders because I just know how much time goes into running a school. Um, similarly, when it comes to a private school, um, my mom ran private uh, daycares uh, and, and, and preschool for I don't know how many years. We were not rich. We were not, you know, we were not balling. Um, but you, what that allows you to do is really create a, a you know, a certain class. I mean, you're not going to become, a, you're not going to be a millionaire opening up private schools. You're not going to be a millionaire opening up charter schools. I don't care who you are, um, but you can create a living and you can create to, to Emory's point, an economy around the people who you believe, um, you know, invest in that community. Do you, we're in a conversation nationally about community policing and how police should be of the communities that they serve. When we're talking about education and the money's going into schooling and the contracts being given to certain people, do you think that's an appropriate like train of thought too when it comes to the education system? Like people who are getting the monies to serve this community should have a contract to serve the community. So this should be of the community that they're serving. I mean, I'll, definitely, I think that's an important piece. I mean, even when you look at just the teaching workforce, you know, we talk about a lot. You have suburban teachers that drive into the inner city, teach those inner city schools and they go home and they're not able to connect with those students and understand what they deal with every day. Um, I actually saw that here with a community center in the school that we were working with. There were several kids in that immediate neighborhood that we're dealing with a lot of different things from, you know, gun violence to domestic violence in the household. And again, they had teachers that were not from that neighborhood, were not from that direct community, would drive in and wouldn't understand why, you know, little son got an attitude today. Well, if you was in a community, you would know that, you know, little son's uncle got, you know, killed in the drive-by last night or, you know, this happened in that household. So I think there's definitely this connection of, you know, teachers and contractors, everybody that's involved with that school, having a direct relationship to the community. Denisha, mm -hmm. I want to make a confession and I, I will say I lied to you earlier. I said that Rosenwald uh, helped build 5,000 schools. They were not 5,000 schools. A number of those, he, he helped build 5,000 buildings. A number of those, a number of those buildings were teachers quarters homes for teachers that were literally right next door to the school. school. So Denisha becomes a graduate of Florida A&M or from Bethune-Cookman, and you go to Albany, Georgia to teach at the local school in the, village, in the, in the community that Edwards family's in. They say, I don't know anybody in Albany, Georgia. I'm a great, I want to come teach. We're going to build you a house too. And you're going to understand everything about the Edwards family and the Dolphin family, the Valentine family, all the family. You're going to go to church with them. You're going to shop in the same stores as them. And you are going to live with them because you understand and when you walk into the classroom, when you go to church, this is the accountability piece. When you live in the community, accountability is way different. You know, like so, how? yeah, I mean, it's, it's a whole different conversation when it comes to accountability. Think about, again, this is this is historical. If anyone has been to Atlanta, Georgia, you've been to the King Center. Oh, you know what? If you walk down half a block, you have Ebenezer Baptist Church. Of the other block, you have the King family. Hold up. The King family's house right here, the church, they were, the houses and the church were on the same block. Yes, sir. Oh, that's like historically in the South, your church leaders, the church owned yeah. the house next door to the church. So they could ensure that whatever pastor we brought in was tied to that community. 
the so, parsonage, the parsonage, the parsonage, which was owned by the church. Yep. We have itinerant pastors who come and go. We have teachers who are itinerant in a, in a traditional sense. They come and go and they don't live in the community. And there's no knock on Teach for America or anyone else. But a lot of Teach for America volunteers, particularly in my school district, live in, live in, they, they live in, they teach in Maryland, but they live in Washington, D.C. They live down in a very up bustling part of the community where they're around other similar age young people. They want to have a life, which I totally understand. But that goes against a lot of his, the history of understanding, again, to Emory's point, you, when you, it's, it's easy to understand and empathize with a student when he talks about being hungry, when you understand that you live in the same food desert yeah. that he or she lives in, that you understand how long it took. When I, was, when I finished Morehouse, I went to South Africa and was a member of the Peace Corps. And I lived in my community and I taught in three schools, but I would walk past students on their way to the river to get water while I was going to school. And it would come to school an hour later. But I, just, I saw them when they walked in the, in the morning going down to the river with a bucket on their head. I knew that. If I lived in the city and came in and said, well, Denisha, why are you late to school? And they're gonna, not going to answer because it's a very different society, but she's going to put her head down and be like, I'm sorry for being late. Not versus, uh, Denisha, I'm glad you made it to school today at all. I'm, I'm so I so appreciate the, you know, the termination you made to go to the river, get the month, get the water, come back and then still walk to school. Because I don't know if I could have done it. It's a whole different conversation when you do that. And it's a whole, whole different accountability when you have people who are literally invested in the community. Because if you can come and go and I tell people all the time, you know, people come into this space um, and my organization around me, and they'll come and they'll come and say, well, Kurt, you know, I think I'm deciding to go do this now. Like you gonna do something totally different? Like what do you want? Like you gonna go sell insurance or something? I, I I can't do that if I wanted to. I couldn't leave this work. Even if I did go sell insurance, I got babies, I got cousins, I got community. I can walk up the street. I can't go to the store because I live in a community like this. We can't turn it off and on. And so, well, kind of so high. I I have a I might, I might be sticking my foot in my mouth, but I don't necessarily agree with that train of thought, and this is why. I grew up in that type of community. I grew up in poverty, in a war zone. I'm just going to call it that. I grew up in a war zone and I got out. And when people come to this country, they immigrate from war torn countries. They see their family members dying in the streets and they come to America. We say, oh, my gosh, you got out like you survived. And now you're able to make a better living for yourself and help. But we don't send them back to the country that they just came from. And but we in America, it seems like, oh, if you are not still living in a war torn neighborhood, then you're not. You're not qualified to be in the classroom or in. I'm not saying that you you not you don't have the knowledge of what's going on in these neighborhoods. That's different. But I don't think you have to live in the neighborhood or what you're trying to help, where you're trying to help. Well, I, just I think the, the expectation is, is that, uh, you know, let's just use you as an example, Denisha, since you said you were putting <laughs> your foot in your mouth. That <laughs> the expectation is that when Denisha goes back to Jacksonville, she's going to go back and help improve her community. And <clears throat> I mean, I'm guilty of that too. I, you know, I, my hometown of Opelousas is, not that great. And I've never had a desire to go back and live there. So I think I'm living, I've lived with what you're talking about, but uh, you know, those are 
tough individual decisions. But, you know, I, again, agree with Curtis that, uh, that, you know, communities need people to go back to it and, and, and or stay in it if possible. And <clears throat> I actually look at something that brings a lot of ed reformers into the picture. And then I'm talking about white ed reformers in the business community. They will say, I'm for ed reform and, and, and I want to improve schools in, in black communities because I believe in workforce development. I, I want to, you know, we need to better educate students mm -hmm. so that uh, they can get jobs and we can have a stronger workforce. But my question always is, what are we, are you making us quote unquote better for the jobs that you think we should do as opposed to the best jobs for our lives? And, uh, you know, I think that's just one of those underlying things that, uh, that we always have to keep our eye on. Uh, and I know some of you have listened to the Nice White Parents podcast, and, and that's kind of in the vein where that comes from. Yeah, Paul, you, you hit on a really important point because that's something that we always have to watch for, especially in your smaller communities, because essentially what they're saying is, you know, we believe in workforce development. So we want to make sure that the community is able to get a job at the local plants that we have versus being able to get an education that can get them out of the city if they want to leave out of the city. Yeah. And or own Denisha, the plant. Yeah, or own yeah. the plant. And Denisha, to a point that you brought up, you know, yeah, we have a lot of immigrants that come here, um, come from war-torn areas, but they also send a lot of their resources back. So it's not just about you going back there yourself, but how can you send resources back where there's having conversations um, with you know people that you're still connected to, um, providing them access to ideas that you have? Like I admit, I haven't been back to Albany in probably 15 plus years, but last year I was able to bring a couple of my friends that are educators to one of the trainings that we that we hosted with Bad Choice, and totally changed how he looked at education. And I'm able through social media and the technology we have now to still engage in conversations with them to say, hey, I know this is the system that we grew up in. And honestly, it hasn't changed that much. Um, I think my high school probably was a C rated high school when I graduated. It's a D rated school now. But mm -hmm. how do you get people to progress? It's by having those conversations and helping them understand the things that we understand now that they're not talking about. And, and I, I would say, I think, I think um, Edward, Edward Emory made an excellent point. For, for the greater part of my 30s, I worked around the world, developing countries, Bosnia, El Salvador, uh, Kenya, uh, Zambia. And I worked with nationals. I, when I came back to the U.S., I worked with them. Most of them who at least came directly have ambitions of going home, almost all of them. Unless you were born here, most of them have ambitions of going home one day and preparing and getting education and building a bank, a hospital, a school there, whether it be uh, directly, indirectly. Uh, and so I think there, that can, that, that commun the communities of, of people from around the world still do that. The question is why we feel as a community uh, that our communities um, don't have similar value. And here's an example, I'll give two examples. One right now, Washington DC, the communities you talk about, Southeast DC, Anacostia, for a long time, people told us that those communities were not worth much, and then we believed them. And then in the, in the middle of the night, we turn around, and all of a sudden, they start gentrifying the communities, and now the value is going up. And you're like, what, what, what happened? You told me it wasn't worth nothing. 
And yeah. now these communities that we that we have quote unquote escaped um, are now of value. And it's just hashtag don't sell grandmama's house yeah. because they grew up grandmama's house. Secondly, the community I talk about where my Rosenwald school, which is about three hours south of Virginia, I mean, of Maryland, I mean, D.C., excuse me, in Southern Virginia, um, my, my dad bought, you know, before he passed away, built a home there. And he talked about how there's a lake called Lake Gaston. And a generation ago, black people owned all the land on that lake. And slowly but surely, um, land was bought up, long, long, you know, people passed away and then claimed the land. And now it is almost entirely white. And now there are million dollar homes on it and boats hanging and everything that you think that we vision we wanted for ourselves generation ago are there now and you're right a lot of people don't go back and they never came back but when you do go back and you realize wow there were people up here developing my community because maybe they saw more value in it uh that's something i think we'll all have to reckon with uh because the the greatest um you know feat of many of those who who, who are our detractors were getting us to believe uh, that where we came from, um, which is, I believe, in many ways who we are, uh, was 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 of no value to us and to the world. When in, when in, when well, in fact they were preparing to take the land in the first place. Yeah, I think you bring up a, a interesting point because um, we we did a video uh, talking about Wakanda, and um, it's, it's so sad. Now we 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 got this movie Black Panther and it really like stretched us to dream beyond what we saw, beyond what we, what we see in our war torn. I'm just going to continue with that analogy neighborhoods. Um, and that there is treasure like you're talking about within the ground. And we don't oftentimes see that. And during the episode, we talked about, uh, you know, the barbershop, that guy who's been there all the time, the cook, the nail salon that's right there in the community. And why not give them monies, you know, to to do some business type of lessons in the school system, you know, give them uh, that contract to teach business education to students because they've been doing it for so long. But we'll go to a Wells Fargo and say, OK, come to our school and teach business. But in reality, that barbershop and that nail salon that's right down the street, they probably have a, a better understanding of the different struggles and the challenges that it's going to take for the kids in the neighborhood to start some of these businesses. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. But talking about Wakanda, because we talked about that a little bit, you know, let's talk about what the ideal school system when it comes to like all these things that's wrapped around it. Who gets the money like from the school lunch contract right, to the school but I'm trying to think of some other things that are around it of course we talked about teachers I mean definitely now when you look at in your, in your I mean you still have janitorial contracts and I mean especially when you look at where we are now with looking at putting kids back in the school buildings uh being able to make sure that our classrooms are clean and sanitized so COVID-19 isn't a you know main issue that we have to worry about but that's a huge contract which a lot of times you will walk in a building and you'll see people that look like us working but they don't always are the ones that actually own that contract before we get too deep, I want to kind of go back to something that you just said about how we get like the local neighborhood barbershops and beauty salons, how we get them involved, you know, with 
enlightening our kids and pushing our kids from an education standpoint. You know, the barbershop that I grew up in, he knew, my barber actually knew when it was time for report cards to come out. So every six weeks, I went and got my haircut every week, every week and a half, when it was time for report cards to come out, before I even sit in that chair, how your grades are signed, you know, what we got going on. It's easier to build those relationships when you are a single site or a small school organization network versus when you look at from a district standpoint. Um, from a district, there's a lot of bureaucracy. So if a principal wanted to build relationships to where you had you know, some connection to your local barbershop, your local church, um, your local beauty salon, he has to run that information all the way up to the district office and it has to come back down versus if he's the end all be all, it's easy for him to set that you know relationship up. Um, I can remember some conversations we had here um, just looking at some of the youth violence that was happening in our city a couple years ago. And there were a lot of community centers that were saying, hey, how can we start like some basketball programs? Um, you know, how can we get kids off the street? You know, we have this neighborhood school, I'll say, quote unquote, neighborhood school there that's just sitting there and the building's empty in the summer. You know, the struggle to actually go through connecting to the school district, getting the approval to where we can just open the gym so kids have somewhere to go. To, to me, that's the piece that we also get when you have black led, black run charges and private schools in your community because they're one directly tied to the community and there's some easier access for them to be able to build those relationships. So to not only to support the community from an economic development standpoint, but also to kind of look at curbing some of the other issues that those communities are dealing with. Denisha, to answer your question, uh, those who have them are those who've, already, who, who've always had them and those who are best positioned to get them. And in many cases, that means someone, family who over generations has built up the capital um, to make, you know, investments in infrastructure uh, and in supply lines and supply chains and able to source things from around the world at a cheaper cost and to underbid someone else. And so where does that come? I mean, this, this goes back long before school boards were run by African-Americans. Most African-American-led school systems were not that way a generation or two ago. But a lot of the, you know, the organizations and a lot of the, the sort of the foundations of, um, of how, you know, a lot of companies right now were created, were created a generation ago. These are like, you know, father to son, father to daughter companies. And so this kind of gets into, again, the historical impact of racism, white supremacy um, in our communities uh, that, that continues even to this day uh, that we don't really reckon with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Denisha, I want to get back to your question about uh, Wakanda. How do we what? How do we recreate that? Uh, I guess in a community. I guess with the related to schools, and I look at it as basically your school, your charter school, private school, whatever, should be the anchor of the community where it's a place where you can do after school activities, where you can do uh these facilities that are you know well funded uh well equipped let's say computer labs those labs are sitting empty once the school day ends why aren't those labs available for uh families to go in 
and use those computers, especially when we talk about the lack of connectivity. Well, if you have access to the school in the evening and can go into this computer lab and do everything from pay your bills to help your kids do homework, uh, that just anchors that school to your community just a little bit more. Yeah, I, um, I've i been seeing it so, it just, it's crazy. Even my niece, uh, we she ran into this, she said, boy, I was 15 years old, walking around with a bucket um, to clean cars and to raise money in order for him to get some internet at his house. And I was like, are you serious? You know, it was it was really crazy. Of course, she let him wash his car, wash her car, and she gave him more than what he was asking for. But I've been seeing that all across social media, and it's like, wow, what can that is? It's pitiful that kids are not able to get internet in this country, like right during this time. And it is is our people who are at the end of the totem pole. You know, they say, okay, you can learn at home. It's like, do you know all that's, you know, at these kids' home that they're, they may be struggling with, you know? And then, I don't know. But I, I was thinking about what you were just talking about, Paul. I mean, we talk about choice, privates, charters, all this stuff. Do you think charters uh, are able to... Uh, or be more in authority about who gets these grants and contracts and who's who's receiving the monies um, than the district school. I think about because I'm thinking about my private school, like our church funded gave money for the food, you know. Uh, yeah. What y'all think? I mean, I'll jump in on that one. I think when you look at, like you said, your smaller private, your smaller charter schools, they do have more ability to direct who's getting or request who's who's getting the money. Uh, you know, when you look at private schools, they definitely have parent groups that are very active, very vocal. Um, you look at charter schools, a lot of charter schools are doing great work around um, getting parents involved, more getting parents in the door and those parents that actually know and understand the agency they have, they're actually saying that they're saying like, hey, we want to see, you know, more people from the community working directly with the school. We want to see people in the community getting contracts related to, you know, facilities, how the school is run. You you get that piece when, you know, you have that black led charter or private school versus like Curtis kind of said, you know, when you look at the larger districts, you know, that's that's where that generational wealth, um, that generational connectivity, you know, your chambers of commerce really come into play because they drive a lot of those decisions about who's, you know, going to be on that contract list, um, who's actually in place, who's in position to be able to, you know, have the insurance, be bonded to be able to do that work. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say if I'm in the community and, you know, I'm either a business person or a connected parent or, or somebody who, who, let's say, looks at a school and, and that school's in the community operating. And I think this example might work easier with a private school because they have more uh, independence with how they contract things out. And that school is looking at doing their lunch program, but they're looking at something like Sodexo or Aramark and I'm in the community 
and if I go back to the, you know, to the back in the day when the, the ladies, it was women managing cafeterias, running these lunchrooms, and they were doing it like a, a small restaurant. How can we force things like that back in the schools? Uh, you know, and the school, of course, is going to be reluctant because it's much easier to just hire a big company like Sodexo to come in and do it as opposed to putting faith in a, let's say, a small business that wants to provide lunch services. So how can we convince schools to start going down that path if entrepreneurs like that emerge? And Paul, it's funny that you brought that up. So I can actually remember seeing this growing up to where our school system, you know, had a larger contract with a Sodexo or Aramark, but the individuals that actually ran the food services in the schools, most of them were local black caterers. So <laughs> change that yeah. from position to yeah. where if those schools were private school or charter schools, instead of going to this big national conglomerate, you could hire that local black caterer that's in your building, in your kitchen already to just run your food services. Yeah. So a lot of times we and have people. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there was they were able to transform the regular lunch that most people got to where, like you said, it ran almost like an outside restaurant or cafeteria. People actually look forward to looking at the lunch menu, seeing what was on the menu because you had these caterers that were connected to the community, actually the ones that were facilitating the food service contract that was going out to a national conglomerate. Well, school lunches, um, let me draw all this up. School lunches is free money. The Department of Education, I mean, I'm sorry, Department mm -hmm. of Agriculture, excuse me, and the Department, Department of Agriculture, particularly in districts like yeah. mine, we have 65% of the kids who qualify for free lunch. Um, they're just sending money down based on, you know, certain income levels. Um, and that's not really a part of a, an average district's budget. You know, so either we're going to get money to pay for them, can't pay for themselves, or children like mine are just going to have to come out of pocket and it's not using them getting a lunch. And so it's kind of like a pass through. Like, you know, here it is, you know, who's going to do something? Um, now, the question, you know, to the point of, you know, how do you do that? You know, some, some of that's going to happen at the federal level, having very, very deliberate about, you know, um, minority businesses and, and, you know, percentage of things like, at least at the traditional public school level. At a private and charter school level, you're right. I mean, you have sort of more more freedom to do so. The question is always going to be, you know, uh, funding and you know money at the margins, and whether that 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 mom and pop in that community um, can serve, you know, so many students at so much money, and if it's a little bit more than what Sodexo or Aramark can do, because they're going to buy in bulk, they're going to ship everything, you know, they're going to be able to yeah. do it, um, you know, and hold uh, cheaper. Whether you're willing to sort of take, you know. You know, accept that cost, or to say, you know what? There's so much more in this. Meaning, we're going to uh, have our students go work at these at these companies, intern there. We're going to have students who are going to grow our own goods. Yeah. Other thing that I think are more important that money really can't buy yeah. is the fact that you know the number of percentage of black farmers in this country is almost none. The percentage of people who can, I mean, someone mentioned earlier uh, talking to some. Who was I talking to? Uh, Might have been Howard Fuller or somebody. And they were like, yeah, man, all these black folks talking about, you know, um, you know, separating and doing, you know, going to war. I said, we, he said, well, we don't grow our own food. Like, we can't, we can't, we can't, you can't, if you don't grow your own food, you can't go to war with nobody. 
because the food supply get cut down and we all messed up. Um, and so I know some of us got a little neighborhood garden. Some of us can grow, you know, little, you know, cucumbers in the backyard. But we have to get back to that. And in many ways, partnering with these local organizations that a lot of schools that have more independence and in how they contract can build up again this black this economy of edu- this economy of education, which is not only do you help support one caterer, maybe they help develop and open up a new caterer, or they expand, or they hire more people, or they create internships, or they you know buy a farm. I mean, there, there's a lot of other things that. I, I hope that those education who are kind of education journalists can kind of like just expand the conversation because when you talk to people in our community in that way, it opens up their mind education beyond pencils, pens, book bags, mm-hmm. and IEPs. It's like, oh, well, you know, I never thought about it. I have a friend who's trying to open up who's a caterer. She's trying to, you know, quit her day job and become a full-time caterer. Are you telling me that there's a chance that she could get a contract, you know, feeding kids every day? She's feeding exactly. kids three times, three times a day. For 180 days. If she can't yeah. make that work, then nobody can. But right. does she have the capacity to get everything she needs to feed 500, 600 kids five, you know, three times a day? And there is no plan B. You can't come in tomorrow and say, I don't have the food for lunch tomorrow and give it to mm-hmm. a day. So it just, it's, there's no like 99% ain't going to do. Uh, and a lot of us, you know, have to get to the point where, you know, we're at that space. It's going to take some grace from some people to sort of say, I, I, I work with you, maybe you, I work with two contractors now and you'll do kind of move you in slowly but surely. Uh, but a lot of times us moving in the direction of change uh, takes a lot of courage uh, and a lot of grace for those who just need to get to a better space for us. Yeah. Kevin, courage, it's, it's, oh. it's battling the, the economies of scale, uh, mm-hmm. which you know, that's that's the big adv- advantage that the Sodexos of the world have. You know, when we're talking about the lunch thing is they do this on a huge scale. So how can you reduce that to one school or two or three schools and, and be able to do that and uh, and be competitive? Yeah. So I think a lot of it comes to. Right, go ahead. Man. I think a lot of it comes down to the intentionality of planning to say, here's how we want to impact our community, you know, it's easier for that smaller network, that smaller individual school to be intentional of saying, hey, we want to connect with the community. We want to empower, you know, those vendors that look like us, that are around us. So while we understand, you know, the economy of scales can get things a little bit cheaper, we may have to pay a little bit more and figure out how we can build some deeper connections, some deeper relationships to be able yeah. to make sure that we're connecting to whether it's a caterer, um, whether it's a local janitorial service, you know, connecting back to those contractors and those organizations, you know, directly in that community. But get, but, but Emory, guess who knows the value of our community? Sodexo. Why? Recently, Sodexo yeah. partnered with who? Magic Johnson. Sodexo mm-hmm. partnered with Magic Johnson and created a separate entity called Magic Sodexo. Magic Johnson's goal, and I know, and I don't know Magic personally, but I know some people who work with him, uh, their goal is to work, is to sort of uh, convince members of school boards like myself and others to work with them. At the same time, they're making inroads in HBCUs. Just got a contract with, uh, I think, Central State about a year mm-hmm. ago to get their food contract. And these groups, and Sodexia will tell you, we just don't do food. We do, we do janitorial. We'll do landscaping. And so they come in under the, under the offices of the um, of that. But again, they're saying, 
there's power in these HBCUs. There's power in these predominantly black school districts. There's power in black private schools and probably black, you know, and these black charter school networks that we have to go about it differently. And let's get the most recognized name and respected face in the black community, rather than in business and in many ways, Magic Johnson. Magic said, you know, I'm going to, you know, I believe in it so much. I'm going to add my brand to this. And he's gone off and done that. Now, guess what happened? I knew that they were that I knew that Matt Johnson was trying to get that central state contract about a, about around the same time. The news comes out that guess what? Magic Johnson donates a million dollars to Central State University. I said he donated a million dollars to Central State scholarships. Oh, he's gonna get four or five million back. Likes, tweets, retweets. Oh, Magic Johnson, you know, philanthropist. Da, 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 da. No one talked about the food contract. And so again, there are people in, in probably in Central Ohio who could have done that for Central State. There's there you know there are a lot of probably smaller businesses who could have done that. There's ways that they could have created their own pro- program. And again, they're trying to say everyone is trying to operate you know with 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 reduced resources. But bigger picture says how are you creating entrepreneurship? How are you supporting the economy? Um, and you know we all love magic, but these companies see our value, and they said. If we don't do something rather aggressive, we're going to lose out on a growing population and a stream of income that is unstoppable and that's going to keep coming, whether it be through Title I programs, through the Department of Agriculture, through all the different programs at the federal and state level that will be here long after the four of us are gone. Kevin Chavis, he has this uh, book series, um, and I'm such a conspiracy theorist, and it's talking about the food industry contracts for for uh, the food lunch contracts for kids in D.C. and how it was major con- uh, company like Sodexo and and um, they were giving money, uh, they were giving these funds to the Sodexos, I guess, of Washington D.C. and they were poisoning the food in uh, black neighborhoods. So all the districts that had a a high percentage of black students, they were poisoning the food to try to kill all kids out. Um, It was was a um, very, uh, very conspiracy theorist type of book, but it talks exactly about about the the food service contracts and who's receiving the monies and who has the best interest um, at heart for our black kids. uh, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend uh, his book, Kevin Chavis, and he's a prolific uh, advocate for um, school choice. And um, yeah, that series was very entertaining, very interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I, be, before we move on, you know, we're in a world of conspiracy theory. I just don't want to you know, miss this opportunity that we have to be you know, evidence based and fact based on anything we do. I've not read his book. Um, and I just want to make sure that, you know, we have enough facts on our side that we don't really have to use a lot of that stuff in order to really make the case. And when you do that, you get people who in many ways are on your side to begin with, give them a reason to be skeptical about stuff you do. Uh, and those who, who are already against you to just say, see, I told you, um, again, we have way too much data. We have way too much evidence on this, on the surface to make our case. And it's too much history. Again, I'm more right now, um, the data, I mean, I've been, talk, I've been talking data for the last 10 years and a lot of people like it just has not sunk in. And so now I said, let me just try another another avenue, which is the history um, and what the history is there and, and what Paul and Emory and you are doing in our community. And the more we talk about our history, I think that's more than enough evidence to make the case for us investing in ourselves and betting on ourselves in, 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 as opposed to a lot of these conspiracy theories that are out there. <laughs> 
Uh, so let's go around the horn. Any last words, any uh, last things to leave with people? Why black minds matter? Why contracts with blacks matter? Um, yeah, let's go around the horn. I mean, I'll kick it off and kind of reiterate what I've been saying. You know, to me, if you're if you truly want to see economic empowerment, our communities in a better place, um, we have to control the education of our children. And the number way, one way of doing that is through more black led charters, more black led, you know, private schools and policies in place that allow the dollars to actually follow the students. So those schools aren't fighting from behind the eight ball from the onset. Um, that intentionality that those you know individual school leaders can have about trying to connect to the community is just so important because that's where we can learn our history. That's how, where we can learn about the Rosenwald schools. Um, Curtis and I did a conversation um, a couple months ago with about 80 HBCU school leaders and none of them had ever heard about the Rosenwald schools. They didn't know that history of us, you know, being black school leaders. You know, we know how HBCU colleges were founded, but we never, most of us never knew that there was also a K through 12 component that really supported a lot of those HBCUs. So if we truly want to be in that place to where we can truly determine the outcome of our communities, we got to look at supporting those policies and supporting the you know founding of black led, black ran charter and private schools. Well, I, I'll, I'll say, I think, um, you know, black, uh, black minds matter is, uh, again, a part of a history, you know, um, reminds me a lot of the term minds is a terrible thing to waste, which is the model of United Negro College Fund. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, a point, a 2.0, you know, I'll read I'll tell you uh, last night I was reading the history of, of uh, UNCF and there, there is a, a reason why they didn't use the word black in that, and that, you know, they're really trying to appeal in many ways, white philanthropists in the community that they were really trying to raise money from. But I'm glad that you and others have been a little more intentional uh, about putting that out there. Um, at the same time, we always knew black minds matter. We always knew that a you know, black mind was a terrible thing. We, we didn't need convincing. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, um, we were trying to tell the world, proclaim to the world uh, what we already knew. But in many ways, I think, you know, work that I'm trying to do historically is to really reinvigorate our own community to understand our own wealth um, so that we can, again, invest in ourselves, uh, whether it be in our own school leaders, our own entrepreneurs, and our own communities. Uh, I'm really glad to be a part of this conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, what comes next. And since we've talked so much about economics uh, during this, this past hour, I want to leave the thought about keep your eye on opportunities related to COVID-19 in schools and specifically learning pods. Uh, that is uh, emerging as, as a big opportunity and it, it's a way where you can uh, get involved with education. It's I think a good opportunity for retired educators and you'll be able to work uh, directly in your community uh, setting up these pods and making some money. Yeah, thank you Paul for that. And there are um, like Paul just mentioned, there's funding from the federal government to uh, start up to continue some of the things that's been happening in, um, for education. And so I would definitely also Tito off of what Paul just said, encourage everyone to look into funding 
not just from the local and state, but from the federal government. Um, I know when I worked at the Department of Education with Secretary DeVos, one of the number one initiatives was to try to figure out why are the same organizations receiving the grants every single year? And so definitely look into grants. One of the great things that happened was opening up more communications around the grants that are available. Um, and so, yeah, thank you guys so much for joining. This was an amazing episode of Black Minds Matter. And I look forward to collaborating with you guys again. Thanks for listening to the Black Minds Matter podcast. You can watch the video of this episode on YouTube. Our goal is simple. We seek to ensure every child receives a quality education in the school of their parents' choosing.